0: Factoring Humanity by Robert J Sawyer. S A W Y E R. This book is published by Tom Dority Associates, Inc., New York. Copyright 1998 by Robert J Sawyer. 350 pages. Narrated by John Ramel. Recorded by volunteers in the studios of the CNIB Library for the Blind. Praise for Robert J. Sawyer and Frameshift. Quote, filled to bursting with ideas, characters, and incidents, end quote. The New York Times. Quote, Robert J. Sawyer's Frameshift is a thriller backed up by fascinating research and a penetrating intelligence. With it he vaults cleanly and assuredly into Dean R. Kuntz territory, unquote. Terence M. Green. Quote, you hardly need me to tell you to buy his latest, Frameshift. You know it's good, you know he gets the tetchy bits right, and you know he's interesting and thought-provoking. Analogue. Frameshift is one of those novels that reminds us of just how exciting science can be. End quote. The Edmonton Journal. Factoring Humanity. Quote, a serious-minded SF novel featuring people caught in a genuine personal crisis, end quote. Science Fiction Chronicle. Robert Sawyer's recent novels, Frameshift, and the Hugo-nominated Starplex have cemented his reputation as one of the fastest rising stars in the science fiction firmament. In 2007, a signal is detected coming from the Alpha Centauri system. Mysterious, unintelligible data streams in for ten years. Heather Davis, a professor in the University of Toronto Psychology Department, has devoted her career to deciphering the message. Her estranged husband, Kyle, is working on the development of artificial intelligence systems and new computer technology utilizing quantum effects to produce a near infinite number of calculations simultaneously. When Heather achieves a breakthrough, the message reveals a startling new technology that rips the barriers of space and time, holding the promise of a new stage of human evolution. In concert with Kyle's discoveries of the nature of consciousness, the key to limitless exploration, or the end of the human race, appears close at hand. Robert Sawyer creates his most gripping thriller yet, a pulse-pounding tour of the farthest reaches of technology. Robert J. Sawyer lives in Thornhill, Ontario. Jacket art and design by Shelley Eshkar and Jan Juretsky. Author photo by Carolyn Klink. A tour hardcover. Distributed in the United States by St. Martin's Press, 175 Fifth Avenue, New York, New York, 10010. Distributed in Canada by H.B. Fenn and Company Limited. Printed in the USA. Novels by Robert J. Sawyer Golden Fleece Farseer Fossil Hunter Foreigner End of an Era The Terminal Experiment Starplex Frameshift Illegal Alien Factoring Humanity for Asbed Bedrosian, who has lived far away from Toronto now for ten times longer than the two years he spent here, and is still one of my best friends. Thank goodness for email. Acknowledgements. Sincere thanks to my agent, Ralph Visinanza and his associate, Christopher Lotz. My editor at Tor, David G. Hartwell. Joy Chamberlain and Jane Johnson of HarperCollins UK, Rudy Rucker, Tad Dembinski, Tom Doherty, Andy LeCount, Jim Minns, and Linda Quinton of Tor, and Robert Howard and Suzanne Holdsworth of HB Fenn. Special thanks to Ottawa artist Larry Stewart who graciously provided the line drawings. Many thanks to those who read and commented on all or part of the manuscript. Ted Blini, Linda C. Carson, Merle kasky David Livingstone, Clink, Martin Crumpton, James Allen Gardner, Terence M. Green, Tom McGee, Howard Miller, Ariel Reich, Alan B. Sawyer, Edo van Belkom, and especially to my lovely wife, Carolyn Clink. What is mind? No matter. What is matter? Never mind. End quote. Thomas Hewitt Key, 1799 to 1875, British classicist. The messages from space had been arriving for almost ten years now. Reception of a new page of data began every thirty hours and fifty-one minutes, an interval presumed to be the length of the day on the sender's homeworld. To date, two thousand eight hundred and forty-one messages had been collected. Earth had never replied to any of the transmissions. The Declaration of Principles Concerning Activities Following the Detection of Extraterrestrial Intelligence, adopted by the International Astronomical Union in 1989, stated quote, No response to a signal or other evidence of extraterrestrial intelligence should be sent until appropriate international consultations have taken place. End quote. With 157 countries comprising the United Nations, That process was still going on. There was no doubt about the direction the signals were coming from. Right ascension, 14 degrees, 39 minutes, 36 seconds. Declination, minus 60 degrees, 50.0 minutes. And parallactic studies revealed the distance. 1.34 parsecs from Earth. The aliens sending the messages apparently lived on a planet orbiting the star Alpha Centauri A, the nearest bright star to our Sun. The first eleven pages of data had been easily deciphered. They were simple graphical representations of mathematical and physical principles, plus the chemical formulas for two seemingly benign substances. But although the messages were public knowledge... "'No one anywhere had been able to make sense "'of the subsequent decoded images. "'Chapter One "'Heather Davis took a sip of her coffee "'and looked at the brass clock on the mantelpiece. "'Her nineteen-year-old daughter Rebecca "'had said she'd be here by eight p.m., "'and it was already eight-twenty. "'Surely Becky knew how awkward this was. "'She had said she'd wanted a meeting with her parents.' "'both of them, simultaneously. "'That Heather Davis and Kyle Graves had been separated for almost a year now "'didn't enter into the equation. "'They could have met at a restaurant, but no. "'Heather had volunteered the house, "'the one in which she and Kyle had raised Becky and her older sister Mary, "'the one Kyle had moved out of last August. "'Now, though, with the silence between her and Kyle having stretched on for yet another minute, she was regretting that spontaneous offer. Although Heather hadn't seen Becky for almost four months, she had a hunch about what Becky wanted to say. When they spoke over the phone, Becky often talked about her boyfriend, Zach. No doubt she was about to announce an engagement. Of course, Heather wished her daughter would wait a few more years, but then again it wasn't as if she was going to university. Becky worked in a clothing store on Spadina. Both Heather and Kyle taught at the University of Toronto, she in psychology, he in computer science. It pained them that Becky wasn't pursuing higher education. In fact, under the Faculty Association Agreement, their children were entitled to free tuition at U of T. At least Mary had taken advantage of that for one year before... No. No, this was a time of celebration. Becky was getting married that was what mattered today. She wondered how Zach had proposed, or whether it had been Becky who had popped the question. Heather remembered vividly what Carl had said to her when he'd proposed, twenty-one years ago, back in 1996. He'd taken her hand, held it tightly, and said, I love you, and I want to spend the rest of my life getting to know you. Heather was sitting in an overstuffed, easy chair. Kyle was sitting on the matching couch. He'd brought his data pad with him and was reading something on it. Knowing Kyle, it was probably a spy novel. The one good thing for him about the rise of Iran to superpower status had been the revitalization of the espionage thriller. On the beige wall behind Kyle was a framed photo print that belonged to Heather, It was made up of an apparently random pattern of tiny black-and-white squares, a representation of one of the alien radio messages. Becky had moved out nine months ago, shortly after she'd finished high school. Heather had hoped Becky might stay at home a while, the only other person in the big empty suburban house now that Mary and Kyle were gone. At first Becky came by the house frequently, and according to Kyle... She had seen her father often enough, too. But soon the gaps between visits grew longer and longer, and then she stopped coming altogether. Carl apparently had become aware that Heather was looking at him. He lifted his eyes from the data pad and managed a wan smile. Don't worry, Han. i I'm sure she'll be here. Hun. They hadn't lived together as husband and wife for eleven months, but the automatic endearments of two decades die hard. Finally, at a little past eight-thirty, the doorbell rang. Heather and Kyle exchanged glances. Becky's thumbprint still operated the lock, of course, as for that matter did Kyle's. No one else could possibly be dropping by this late. It had to be Becky. Heather sighed. That Becky didn't simply let herself in underscored Heather's fears— Her daughter no longer considered this house to be her home. Heather got up and crossed the living room. She was wearing a dress, hardly her normal at-home attire, but she had wanted to show Becky that her coming by was a special occasion. And as Heather passed the mirror in the front hall and caught sight of the blue floral print of the dress, she realized that she too was acting as Becky was. "'treating her daughter's arrival as a visit from someone "'for whom airs had to be put on. "'Heather completed the journey to the door, "'touched her hands to her dark hair "'to make sure it was still properly positioned, "'then turned the knob. "'Becky stood on the step. "'She had a narrow face, high cheekbones, "'brown eyes and brunette hair that brushed her shoulders. "'Beside her was her boyfriend, Zack. "'all gangly limbs and scraggly blonde hair. "'Hello, darling,' said Heather to her daughter, "'and then, smiling at the young man whom she hardly knew, "'Hello, Zack." "'Becky stepped inside. "'Heather thought perhaps her daughter would stop long enough to kiss her, "'but she didn't. Zack followed Becky into the hall, "'and the three of them made their way up into the living room, "'where Kyle was still sitting on the couch. "'Hi, Pumpkin.' said Carl looking up "Hi Zack" His daughter didn't even glance at him her hand found Zack's and they intertwined fingers Heather sat down in the easy chair and motioned for Becky and Zack to sit as well There wasn't enough room on the couch next to Carl for both of them Becky found another chair and Zack stood behind her a hand on her left shoulder "It's so good to see you dear" said Heather "'She opened her mouth again, realized that what was about to come out "'was a comment on how long it had been, "'and closed it before the words got free. "'Becky turned to look at Zack. "'Her lower lip was trembling. "'What's wrong, dear?' asked Heather, shocked. "'If not an engagement announcement, then what? "'Could Becky be ill, in trouble with the police? "'She saw Kyle lean slightly forward.' "'He, too, was detecting his daughter's anxiety. "'Go ahead,' said Zack to Becky. "'He whispered it, but the room was quiet enough that Heather could make it out. "'Becky was silent for a few moments longer. "'She closed her eyes, then reopened them. "'Why?' she said, her voice quavering. "'Why what, dear?' said Heather. "'Not you,' said Becky.' Her gaze fell for an instant on her father, then it dropped to the floor him why, what asked Kyle, sounding as confused as Heather felt the clock on the mantelpiece chimed. it did that every quarter hour. Why said Becky, raising her eyes again to look at her father, did you say it? whispered Zack forcefully. "'Becky swallowed, then blurted it all out. "'Why did you abuse me?' "'Kyle slumped against the couch. "'The data pad, which had been resting on the couch's arm, "'fell to the hardwood floor with a clattering sound. "'Kyle's mouth hung open. "'He looked at his wife. "'Heather's heart was racing. "'She felt nauseous. "'Kyle closed his mouth, then opened it again.' "'Pumpkin, I never—' "'Don't deny it,' said Becky. Her voice was quaking with fury. Now that the accusation was out, a dam had apparently burst. "'Don't you dare deny it.' "'But, Pumpkin—' "'And don't call me that. My name is Rebecca.' Kyle spread his arms. "'I'm sorry, Rebecca. I didn't know it bothered you, my calling you that.' "'Damn you,' she said. "'How could you do that to me?' "'I never—don't lie. "'For God's sake, at least have the guts to admit it. "'But I never—rebecca, you're my daughter. "'I'd never hurt you. "'You did hurt me. "'You ruined me. "'Me and Mary.' "'Heather rose to her feet. "'Becky! "'And you!' shouted Becky. "'You knew what he was doing to us, "'and you didn't do anything to stop him.' "'Don't yell at your mother,' said Carl, his voice sharp. Becky, I never touch you or Mary. You know that. Zack spoke in a normal volume for the first time. I knew he'd deny it. Carl snapped at the young man. Damn you. You keep out of this. Don't raise your voice at him, said Becky to Carl. Carl fought to be calm. This is a family matter, he said. We don't need him here. Heather looked at her husband, then at her daughter. Becky. "'Heather said, fighting to keep her own voice under control. "'I swear to you—' "'Don't you deny it, too,' Becky said. "'Heather took a deep breath and let it out slowly. "'Tell me,' she said, "'tell me what you think happened.' "'There was silence for a long time "'as Becky apparently composed her thoughts. "'You know what happened,' she said at last, "'the accusatory tone still in her voice.' "'He'd slip out of your room after midnight and come to mine, or Mary's.' "'Becky,' said Kyle. "'I never—' "'Becky looked at her mother, but then closed her eyes. "'He'd come into my room, have me remove my top, fondle my breasts, and then—' "'She choked off, opened her eyes and looked again at Heather. "'You must have known,' she said. "'You must have seen him leaving, seen him come back.' "'A pause as she took a shuddering breath. "'You must have smelled the sweat on him, "'smelt me on him.' "'Heather was shaking her head. "'Becky, please.' "'None of that ever happened,' said Kyle. "'There's no point staying if he's going to deny it,' said Zack. "'Becky nodded and reached into her purse. "'She pulled out a tissue and wiped her eyes, "'then got to her feet and began walking away. "'Zack followed her, and so did Heather.' "'Kyle rose as well, but in a matter of moments "'Becky and Zack were down the stairs and at the front door. uh, "'Pump—Becky, please,' said Kyle, catching up with them. "'I'd never hurt you.' "'Becky turned around. Her eyes were red, her face flushed. "'I hate you,' she said. "'And then she and Zack scurried out the door into the night. "'Kyle looked at Heather.' "'Heather, I swear I never touched her.' "'Heather didn't know what to say. "'She headed back up to the living room, holding the banister for balance. "'Kyle followed. "'Heather took a chair, but Kyle went to the liquor cabinet and poured himself some scotch. "'He drained it in a gulp and stood leaning against the wall. "'It's that boyfriend of hers,' said Kyle. "'He put her up to this. "'They'll be filing a lawsuit. "'Bet you anything can't wait for the inheritance.' "'Kyle, please,' said Heather. "'It's your daughter you're talking about. "'And it's her father she's talking about. "'I'd never do anything like that. "'Heather, you know that.' "'Heather stared at him. "'Heather,' said Kyle, a note of pleading in his voice now, "'you must know it's not true. "'Something had kept Rebecca away for almost a year, "'and something before that had—' "'She hated to think about it. "'and yet it came to mind every day, every hour. "'Something had driven Mary to suicide. "'Heather?' "'I'm sorry,' she swallowed. then, after a moment, nodded. "'I'm sorry. I know you couldn't do anything like that.' "'But her voice sounded flat, even to her. "'Of course not. It's just that—' "'What?' snapped Carl. "'It's—' "'No, nothing.' "'What?' "'Well, you did have a habit of getting up, "'of leaving our room in the middle of the night.' "'I can't believe you're saying that,' said Kyle. "'I can't fucking believe it.' "'It's true. two, three nights a week sometimes. "'I have trouble sleeping. "'You know that. "'I get up and go to watch some TV "'or maybe do some work on my computer. "'Christ, I still do that, and I live alone now. "'I did it last night.' "'Heather said nothing.' "'I couldn't sleep. "'If I'm still awake, an hour after I go to bed, I get up. "'You know that. "'No bloody point just lying there. "'Last night I got up and watched—Christ, what was it? "'I watched a six-million-dollar man on Channel 3. "'It was the one with William Shatner as the guy who could communicate with dolphins. "'You call the TV station. "'They'll tell you that's the one that was on. "'And then I sent some email to Jake Montgomery.' We can go to my apartment right now, right now, and look at my outbox. You'll see the time stamp on it. And I came back to bed around 1.25, 1.30, something like that. Nobody accused you of doing anything wrong last night. But that's the kind of thing I do every night I get up. Sometimes I watch the Six Million Dollar Man, sometimes the John Pellet Show, and I look at the Weather Channel, see what it's going to be like tomorrow. They said it was going to rain today, but it didn't. "'Oh, yes, it did,' thought Heather. "'It came down in fucking buckets.'" Chapter 2 The University of Toronto, the self-styled Harvard of the North, was established in 1827. Some 50,000 full-time students were enrolled there. The main campus was downtown, not surprisingly anchored at the intersection of University Avenue and College Street. But although there was a traditional central campus, U of T also spilled out into the city proper, lining St George Street and several other roads with a hodgepodge of 19th, 20th, and early 21st century architecture. The university's most distinctive landmark was the Robarts Library, often called Fort Book by students, a massive, complex, concrete structure. Kyle Graves had lived in Toronto all of his 45 years, Still, it was only recently that he'd seen an architect's model of the campus, and realized that the library was shaped like a concrete peacock, with the hooded Thomas Fisher rare books tower rising up as a beaked neck in front, and two vast wings spreading out behind. Unfortunately, there was no place on campus where you could look down on robots to appreciate the design. U of T did have three associated theological colleges—Emmanuel— "'affiliated with the United Church of Canada, "'the Presbyterian Knox and the Anglican Wycliffe. "'Perhaps the peacock was meant to be seen only by God "'or visitors from space, "'sort of a Canadian Plains of Nazca. "'Kyle and Heather had separated shortly after Mary's suicide. "'It had been too much for both of them, "'and their frustration over not understanding what had happened "'had spilled out in all sorts of ways.' The apartment Carl lived in now was a short walk from Downsview Subway Station in suburban Toronto. He would taken the subway down to St. George Station this morning, and was now walking the short distance south to Dennis Mullin Hall, which was located at 91 St. George Street, directly across the road from the Robarts Library. He passed the Bata Shoe Museum, the world's largest museum devoted to footwear, housed in another miracle of twentieth-century design a building that looked like a slightly squashed shoebox. One of these days he'd actually go inside. In the distance, down at the lakeshore, he could see the CN Tower, no longer the world's tallest freestanding structure, but still one of its most elegant. After about two minutes, Kyle reached Mullin Hall, the new four-storey circular building that housed the Artificial Intelligence and Advanced Computing Department. Carl entered through the main sliding-glass doors. "'His lab was on the third floor, "'but he took the stairs instead of the waiting elevator. "'Ever since his heart attack four years ago, "'he'd made a point of getting little bits of exercise whenever he could. "'He remembered when he used to huff and puff after just two flights of stairs, "'but today he emerged without breathing hard at all. "'He headed down the corridor, the open atrium on his left, "'until he reached his lab.' He pressed his thumb against the scanning plate, and the door slid open. "'Good morning, Dr. Graves,' said a rough male voice as he entered the lab. "'Good morning, Cheetah. "'I have a new joke for you, Dr. Graves.' Carl took off his hat and hung it on the old wooden coat rack. "'Universities never threw anything out. "'This one must have dated back to the 1950s. "'He started the coffee-maker, then took a seat in front of a computer console,' its front panel banked at 45 degrees. In the centre of the panel were two small lenses that tracked in unison, like eyes. "'There's this French physicist, see?' said Cheetah's voice, coming from a speaker grill below the mechanical eyes. "'This guy's working at CERN, and he's devised an experiment to test a new theory. He starts up the particle accelerator,' and waits for the results of the collision he's arranged. When the experiment is over, he rushes out of the control room into the corridor, holding a printout showing the trails of the resulting particles. There he runs into another scientist, and the other scientist says to him, Jacques, he says, did you get the two particles you were expecting? And Jacques points first to one particle trail, and then to the other and exclaims, May we, Higgs boson, quark? Kyle stared at the pair of lenses. Cheetah repeated the punchline. May we, Higgs boson, quark? I don't get it, said Kyle. A Higgs boson is a particle with zero charge and no intrinsic spin. A quark, is a fundamental constituent of protons and neutrons. I know what they are, for Pete's sake, but I don't see why the joke is funny. It's a pun. May we. That's French for, but, yes. May we. Higgs. Boson. Quark. Cheetah. Pause for a beat. Mary. Higgins. Clark. Another pause. "'She's a famous mystery writer.' "'Kyle sighed. "'Cheetah, that's too elaborate. "'For a pun to work, the listener has to get it in a flash. "'It's no good if you have to explain it.' "'Cheetah was quiet for a moment. "'Oh,' he said at last, "'I've disappointed you again, haven't I?' "'I wouldn't say that,' said Kyle. "'Not exactly.' Cheetah was an APE, a computer simulation designed to approximate psychological experiences. He aped humanity. Kyle had long been a proponent of the strong artificial intelligence principle. The brain was nothing more than an organic computer, and the mind was simply the software running on that computer. When he'd first taken this stance publicly in the late 1990s, it had seemed reasonable computing capabilities were doubling every eighteen months soon enough there would be computers with greater storage capacity and more interconnections than the human brain had surely once that point was reached the human mind could be duplicated on a computer the only trouble was that that point had by now been attained indeed most estimates said that computers had exceeded the human brain in information processing capability and degree of complexity Four or five years previously. "'And still Cheetah couldn't distinguish a funny joke from a lousy one. "'If I don't disappoint you,' said Cheetah's voice, "'then what's wrong?' "'Kyle looked around his lab. "'Its inner and outer walls were curved following the contours of Mullin Hall, "'but there were no windows. "'The ceiling was high and covered with lighting panels behind metal grids. "'Nothing.' "'Don't kidder, kidder,' said Cheetah. "'You spent months teaching me to recognize faces, "'no matter what their expression. "'I'm still not very good at it, "'but I can tell you who you are at a glance, "'and I know how to read your moods. "'You're upset over something.' Carl pursed his lips, "'considering whether he wanted to answer. "'Everything Cheetah did was by dint of sheer computational power,' Kyle certainly felt no obligation to reply. And yet... And yet no one else had come into the lab so far today. Kyle hadn't been able to sleep at all last night after he'd left the house. He still thought of it as the house, not Heather's house. And he'd come in early. Everything was silent except for the hum from equipment and the overhead fluorescent lights and Cheetah's utterings in his deep and rather nasal voice. Carl would have to adjust the vocal routine at some point. The attempt to give Cheetah natural-sounding respiratory asperity had resulted in an irritating mimicry of real speech. As with so much about the ape, the differences between it and real humans were all the more obvious for the earnestness of the attempt. No, he certainly didn't have to reply to Cheetah, But maybe he wanted to reply. After all, who else could he discuss the matter with? "'Initiate privacy locking,' said Kyle. "'You are not to relay the following conversation to anyone, "'or make any inquiries pursuant to it. Understood?' "'Yes,' said Cheetah. "'The final S was protracted, thanks to the vocoder problem. "'There was silence between them. "'Finally, Cheetah prodded Kyle.' "'What was it you wished to discuss?' "'Where to begin?' "'Christ, he wasn't even sure why he was doing this.' "'But he couldn't talk about it with anyone else. "'He couldn't risk gossip getting around. "'He remembered what happened to Stone Bentley over in anthropology, "'accused by a female student of sexual harassment five years ago, "'fully exonerated by a tribunal. "'Even the student eventually recounted the accusation.' And still he had been passed over for the associate deanship, and to this day Kyle overheard the occasional whispered remark from other faculty members or students. No, he would not subject himself to that. It's nothing, really, said Kyle. He shuffled across the room and poured himself a cup of the now-ready coffee. No, please, said Cheetah. Tell me. Kyle managed a wan smile. He knew Cheetah wasn't really curious. He himself had programmed the algorithm that aped curiosity. When a person appears to be reluctant to go on, become insistent. Still, he did need to talk to someone about it. He had enough trouble sleeping without this weighing on him. "'My daughter is mad at me.' "'Rebecca,' supplied Cheetah. "'Another algorithm.' imply intimacy to increase openness Rebecca, yes she says she says he trailed off what? the nasal twang made Cheetah's voice sound all the more solicitous she says I molested her in what way? Kyle exhaled noisily No real human would have to ask that question. Christ, this was stupid. In what way? asked Cheetah again, no doubt after his clock indicated it was time to prod once more. Sexually, said Kyle softly. The microphone on Cheetah's console was very sensitive. Doubtless he heard. Still he was quiet for a time. A programmed affectation. Oh, he said at last. Kyle could see lights winking on the console. Cheetah was accessing the World Wide Web, quickly researching this topic. You're not to tell anyone, said Kyle sharply. I understand, said Cheetah. Did you do what you are accused of? Kyle felt anger growing within him. Of course not. Can you prove that? "'What the fuck kind of a question is that?' "'A salient one,' said Cheetah. "'I assume Rebecca has no actual evidence of your guilt.' "'Of course not.' "'And one presumes you have no evidence of your innocence.' "'Well, no.' "'Then it is her word against yours.' "'A man is innocent until he's proven guilty,' said Carl. "'Cheetah's consul played the first four notes from Beethoven's Fifth Symphony.' No one had bothered to program realistic laughter yet. Cheetah's malfunctioning sense of humor hardly required it, and the music served as a placeholder. I'm supposed to be the naive one, Dr. Graves. If you are not guilty, why would she make the accusation? Carl had no answer for that. Cheetah waited his programmed time, then tried again. If you are not guilty, why? Shut up. "'said Cal. "'Chapter Three "'Heather wasn't teaching any courses "'during the summer session, thank God. "'She tossed and turned all night "'after Becky's visit "'and hadn't managed to get out of bed "'until eleven a.m. "'How do you go on from something like this?' "'She wondered. "'Mary had died sixteen months ago. "'No,' thought Heather. "'No. "'Face it head on.' "'Mary had committed suicide sixteen months ago. "'They'd never known why. "'Becky had been living at home back then. "'It had been she who had found her sister's body. "'How do you go on? "'What do you do next?' "'The year Becky was born, Bill Cosby had lost his son, Ennis. "'Heather, with a newborn sucking at her breast, "'and a two-year-old bundle of energy racing around the house,' had been moved to write a note to Cosby, in care of CBS, expressing sympathy. As a mother, she knew nothing could be more devastating than the loss of a child. Tens of thousands wrote such notes, of course. Cosby, or his staff at any rate, had replied, thanking her for the concern. Somehow, Bill Cosby had gone on. At the same time, another father was in the news every night, Fred Goldman— "'father of Ron Goldman, "'the man killed alongside Nicole Brown Simpson. "'Fred was furious with O.J. Simpson, "'the person he was convinced had slaughtered his boy. "'Fred's anger was palpable, "'exploding from the TV set. "'The Goldman family published a book. "'His name is Ron. "'Heather had even gone to meet them "'when they'd autographed copies "'at the chapter's superstore down by the university.' She knew, of course, that the book would be remaindered a few months later, like all the other flotsam tied into the Simpson trial, but she bought a copy anyway, getting Fred to sign it, showing her support, one parent to another. Somehow Fred Goldman had gone on. When Mary had killed herself, Heather had looked to see if the Goldman book was still among their collection. It was indeed, standing on a living-room shelf next to Margaret Atwood's alias Grace, another hardcover Heather had broken the budget for it about the same time. Heather had taken down the Goldman book and opened it. There were pictures of Fred in it, but all of them were happy family shots, not the face she remembered, the one seething with fury, all of it directed at Simpson.' When your child takes his or her own life, where do you direct the anger? At whom do you aim it? The answer is no one. You internalize it, and it eats you up from the inside, bit by bit, day by day. And the answer is everyone. You lash out at your husband, your other child, your co-workers. Oh yes, you go on, but you're never the same. "'But now, now if Becky was right, "'if Becky was right, there was someone to aim the anger at. "'Kyle, Becky's father, Heather's estranged husband. "'As she walked south along St. George Street, "'she thought about that framed alien radio message on their living room wall. "'Heather was a psychologist.' She had spent the last decade trying to decipher the alien messages, trying to plumb the alien mind. She knew that particular message better than anyone else on the planet did. She would published two papers about it, and yet she still had no idea what it really said. She didn't really know it at all. Heather had known Carl for almost a quarter of a century. But did she really know him at all? She tried to clear her mind— tried to set aside the shock of the night before. The sun was bright that afternoon. She squinted against it and wondered again about the aliens who were sending the messages. If nothing else, sunlight like this was something humans shared with the centaurs. No one knew what the aliens looked like, of course, but political cartoonists had taken to drawing them like their namesakes from Greek mythology. Alpha Centauri A was almost an exact twin for Earth's Sun. Both were spectral class G2V. Both had a temperature of 5,800 Kelvin, so both shone down on their planets with the same yellow-white light. Yes, cooler, smaller Alpha Centauri B might add an orange hue when it too was visible in the sky, but there would be times when only A would be up, and at those times the centaurs and the humans would have looked out on identically illuminated landscapes. She continued on down the street, heading to her office. We go on, she thought. We go on. The next morning, Saturday, July 22nd, Carl rode the subway four stops past his usual destination of St George Station, all the way to Osgood. Becky's boyfriend, Zach Malchus "'worked as a clerk at a bookshop on Queen Street West. "'That much Kyle remembered "'from what little Becky had said to him over the past year. "'Which bookshop Kyle didn't know? "'But there weren't many left. "'During his high school years, "'Kyle had often ventured down to Queen on a Saturday afternoon, "'looking for new science fiction at Backer, "'new comics at the Silver Snail, "'and out-of-print works at the dozen or so used bookstores.' that had lined the street back then. But independent bookstores had been having a hard time. Most had either relocated to less trendy areas, where the rent was more modest, or had simply gone out of business. These days Queen Street West was home mostly to trendy cafes and bistros, although the Rococo headquarters of one of Canada's broadcasting empires was located near the subway exit at University Avenue. There couldn't be more than three or four bookstores left, so Kyle decided to simply try them all. He began with venerable pages on the north side. He looked around, and like Becky, Zach was in university, so he presumably probably did work on weekends rather than during the week. But there was no sign of Zack's blonde, rangy form. Still, Kyle went up to the cashier, a stunning East Indian woman with eight earrings. "'Hello,' he said." "'She smiled at him. "'Does Zach Malkus work here?' "'We've got a Zach Barboni,' she said. Carl felt his eyes widening slightly. "'When he'd been a kid, everyone had had normal names— "'David, Robert, John, Peter. "'The only Zach he'd ever heard of was the bumbling Zachary Smith "'on the old TV series Lost in Space. "'Now it seemed that every kid he ran into was a Zach or an Odin or a Wing.' "'No, that's not him,' said Kyle. "'Thanks, anyway.' He continued west. Panhandlers hit him up for donations along the way. There had been a time in his youth when panhandlers were so rare in Toronto that he could never bring himself to say no. But they had become plentiful in downtown, although they always solicited with studied Canadian politeness. Kyle had perfected the straight-ahead Torontonian gaze, jaw set, never meeting the eyes of a beggar, but still making his head swing through a tiny arc of no to each request. It would be rude, after all, to completely ignore someone who was talking to you. Toronto the good, he thought, recording an old advertising slogan. Although the beggars today were a mixed group, many were native Canadians. What Kyle's father still called Indians In fact, Carl couldn't remember the last time he'd seen a native Canadian anywhere except begging on a street corner, although there were doubtless still many on reservations someplace. Several years ago, he'd had a couple of natives in one of his classes, sent there on a now-defunct government programme, but he couldn't think of a single U of T faculty member, even ironically in native studies, who was a Canadian Aborigine. Carl continued on till he came to Bacca. The store had started on Queen West in 1972, had moved away a quarter century later, and now was back, not far from its original location. Carl felt sure he'd have remembered, and that Becky would have mentioned it. Is Zach worked now? Still, painted on the shop's plate glass front window was the derivation of the store's name Bacca. Noun, myth. "'in Freeman legend, the weeper who mourns for all mankind. "'Backer must be working overtimes these days,' thought Carl. "'He entered the store and spoke to the bearded elfin man behind the counter, "'but no Zach Malchus worked there either. "'Carl continued to search. "'He was wearing a Tilly's safari shirt and blue jeans, "'not much different from what he wore while teaching.' The next door was about a block farther along, on the south side of the street. Carl waited for a red-and-white streetcar, recently converted to maglev travel, to Hum quietly passed, then made his way across. This store was much more upscale than Backer. Someone had recently put a lot of money into renovating the old brownstone building that housed it, and the stone façade had been sandblasted clean. Most people drove skimmers these days. But many of the buildings still carried the grime of decades of automobile exhaust. A chime sounded as Kyle entered. A dozen or so patrons were in the shop. Perhaps in response to the chime, a clerk appeared from behind a dark wooden bookcase. It was Zack. Miss... Mr. Graves, he said. Hello, Zach. What are you doing here? he said with venom as if any reference to Kyle was distasteful. "'I need to talk to you,' dismissively. "'I'm working.' "'I can see that. When's your break?' "'Not until noon.' Kyle did not look at his watch. "'I'll wait.' "'But I have to talk to you, Zach. You owe me that much.' The boy pursed his lips, thinking, Then he nodded. "'Kyle did wait.' Normally he liked browsing in bookshops, especially the kind with real paper volumes, but he was too nervous to concentrate today. He spent some time looking at an old copy of Columbo's Canadian quotations, reading what people had said about family life. Columbo contended that the most famous Canadian quotation of all was McLuhan's, The Medium is the Message. That was likely true, but one that was uttered more frequently even if it wasn't uniquely Canadian, was My Children Hate Me. There was still some time to kill. Kyle left the store. Next door was a poster shop. He went in and looked around. It was decorated all in chrome and black enamel. There were lots of Robert Bateman wildlife paintings, some group of Seven Stuff, a series of prints by Jean-Pierre Normand, photo portraits of current pop music stars, Old movie posters, from Citizen Kane to The Fall of the Jedi. Hundreds of holo posters of landscapes and spacescapes and seascapes. And Dali. Kyle had always liked Dali. There was Persistence of Memory, the one with the melting watches, and the Sacrament of the Last Supper. And say, that one would be great for his students. Christus hypercubus. It had been years since he'd seen it anywhere, and it sure would liven up the lab. He'd doubtless take some flack for hanging a picture with religious overtones, but what the heck? Carl found the slot that had rolled up copies of the poster in it, and took one up to the cashier, a small Eastern European man. 35.95, said the clerk. Plus, 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 plus PST, GST, and NST. Canadians were the most tax people in the world. Kyle handed over his smart cash card. The clerk placed it in the reader, and the total was deleted from the chip on the card. The clerk then wrapped a small bag around the poster tube and handed it to Kyle. Kyle headed back to the bookstore. A few minutes later, Zach's break came. "'Is there somewhere we can talk?' asked Kyle. Zack looked as though he was still very reluctant, but after a moment he said, The office? Carl nodded, and Zack led him into the back room, which seemed to be more a storage facility than anything that might justly be termed an office. Zack closed the door behind them. Rickety bookcases and two beat-up wooden desks filled the space. No money had been spent upgrading this part of the store. Outward appearances were everything. Zack offered Kyle the single chair, but Kyle shook his head. Zack sat down. Kyle leaned against a bookcase, which shifted slightly. He backed off, not wanting it to come toppling down on him. He'd had enough of that lately. Zack, I love Becky, said Kyle. No one, said Zack firmly, who loved her could do what you did. He hesitated for a moment as if wondering whether to push his luck. But then, with the righteousness of the young, he added, You sick bastard. Carl felt like hauling back and hitting the kid. I didn't do anything. I'd never hurt her. You did hurt her. She can't what? Nothing. But Carl had learnt a lesson or two from Cheetah. Tell me. Zach seemed to consider, then finally he just blurted it out. She can't even have sex anymore. Carl felt his heart jump. Of course, Becky was sexually active. She was nineteen, for Pete's sake. Still, although he had suspected it, he didn't like hearing about it. I never touched her inappropriately. Never. She wouldn't like me talking to you. Damn it, Zack! My family is being torn apart. I need your help. Sneering now. That's not what you said Thursday night. You said it was a family matter. You said I had no place there. Becky won't talk to me. I need you to intercede. What? Tell her that you didn't do it. She knows you did it. I can prove that I didn't do it. That's why I came here. I want you to agree to come by the university. Zack, who was wearing a ras and t-shirt, bristled "'Kyle knew that those who attended Toronto's other two universities "'hated the way U of T types always referred to it as THE university.' "'Why?' asked Zach. "'They teach forensics at U of T,' said Kyle. "'We've got a polygraph lab, and I know a guy who works there. "'He's been an expert witness in hundreds of cases. "'I want you to come to that lab, "'and I'll have myself hooked up to a lie detector.' "'I'll let you ask me any questions you want about this topic, "'and you'll see that I'm telling the truth. "'I didn't hurt Becky. "'I couldn't hurt her. "'You'll see that that's true. "'You could get your friend to rig the test. "'We can have the test done somewhere else, then. "'You name the lab. I'll pay for it. "'Then, once you know the truth, "'maybe you can help me get through to Becky. "'A pathological liar can beat a lie detector.' Carl's face went flush.' He surged forward, grabbed the boy's shirt-front, but then he backed off, spreading his arms, palms face out. "'Sorry,' he said. "'Sorry.' He fought to calm down. "'I tell you, I'm innocent. Why won't you let me prove it?' Zack's face was flushed now. Adrenaline must have surged through him when he thought Carl was going to rough him up. "'I don't need you to take a test,' he said, his voice ragged. "'Becky told me what you did. "'She's never lied to me.' "'Of course she has,' thought Carl. "'People lie to other people all the time.' "'I didn't do this,' he said again. Zack shook his head. "'You don't know the kinds of problems Becky had. "'She's getting better now, though. "'She cried for hours after we left your place on Thursday. "'But she's a lot better. "'But, Zack, you know that Becky and I have lived apart for almost a year now.' "'If I had really been doing something wrong, "'surely she would have left earlier, "'or at least have said something as soon as she got out of the house. "'Why on earth? "'You think this is easy to talk about? "'Her therapist says, "'Therapist?' "'Carol felt as if he'd been struck. "'His own daughter was in therapy. "'Why the fuck didn't he know this? "'What the hell was she in therapy for?' Zack made a face, indicating the answer was obvious.' What's the therapist's name? If I can't convince you, maybe I can convince him. I... don't know. You're lying. But the accusation just made Zack more determined. I'm not. I don't know. How did she find this therapist? Zack shrugged a little. It was the same one her older sister had used. Mary? Kyle staggered backward, bumping into the other wooden desk. There was a half-eaten doughnut sitting on a napkin on its corner. It fell to the floor, crumbling in two. Mary was in therapy, too? Of course she was. Who can blame her after what you did to her? I didn't do anything to Mary, and I didn't do anything to Becky, either. Now who's lying? said Zack. I'm not. He paused, trying to get his voice under control. Damn it, Zack! God fucking damn it. You are in this with her. The two of you are going to file a lawsuit, aren't you? Becky doesn't want your money, Zack said. She just wants peace. She just wants closure. Closure? What the fuck kind of a word is that? Is that what her therapist told her this was all about? Fucking closure? Zack stood up. Mr. Graves, go home. And for God's sake, get to a therapist yourself. Carl stormed out of the office through the retail area "'and out into the hellish heat of the summer day. "'Chapter Four Carl remembered the day he'd learned "'that Heather was pregnant with her first child, Mary. "'It had come as a complete shock. "'They'd been living together for about a year, "'sharing an apartment in St. James' town "'with a few hundred cockroaches. Carl was in the second year of his master's in computer science. "'Heather was just starting her master's in psychology.' They were in love, no doubt, and had talked about building a life together, but Carl and Heather both knew they should each go somewhere other than U of T for their doctorates. Not that U of T wasn't a fine place for grad school—indeed, if it really did have any claim to that, Harvard of the North label, it was because of its graduate studies. But having all three degrees from the same institution would be an automatic red flag in future job interviews. Then suddenly Heather was pregnant and they'd had tough decisions to make. They'd talked about abortion. Although they did eventually want children, this was, without doubt, an unplanned pregnancy. But, but, hell, when would be the right time? Not while they were finishing their master's degrees, of course, and certainly not while doing their doctorates. And, well, the starting salaries for associate professors were abysmal. Heather had already decided that an academic life was what she wanted, And Kyle, who didn't enjoy stressful situations, was leaning towards that as well, rather than the high-pressure world of commercial computing. And then, of course, they wouldn't really be secure until at least one of them had tenure. And by then, then, more than a decade would have slipped by, and Heather would be into the high-risk age for pregnancy. Choices. Turning points. It could go one way or the other. At last they had opted to have the child. Countless student couples had done the same over the years. It would be difficult, a stretch financially, an additional demand on their already overtaxed time, but it would be worth it. Surely it would be worth it. Carl remembered vividly the class he'd been in the day Heather had told him she was pregnant. It had seemed so appropriate somehow. Suppose... Professor Papineau had said to the dozen students in the seminar that had seemed to start out a long way from computer science that you live just north of Queen's Park and you work just south of it. Further, suppose that you walk to work each day. You're faced with a choice every morning. You can't walk down the centre line since the Parliament buildings get in the way. Of course, I'm sure there have been times when many of us would have wanted to plough through the legislature in a tank, but I digress laughter from the students. Papineau had been a wonderful prof. Carl had gone to his retirement dinner fifteen years later, but hadn't seen him since. "'No,' said Papineau, once the chuckling had stopped. "'You have to go around the buildings, either to the east or to the west. Each way is pretty much the same distance. You leave home at the same time, and you arrive at work at the same time, regardless of which route you choose. "'So which route do you choose?' "'You, there, Kyle. "'Which way would you go?' "'Kyle had his beard even back then, "'as today it was red, even though his hair was black. "'But in those days he'd kept it scruffy, unkempt, "'never trimming it, never shaving his neck beneath. "'He cringed now to think about it. "'Down the west,' he said, "'shrugging to convey that it was a purely arbitrary selection. "'A fine choice,' said Papineau. But it's not the only choice, and in the many worlds' interpretation of quantum mechanics we believe that any time a choice can be made one way, the alternative choice is also made, but in a parallel universe. If Kyle did indeed come down the west side in this universe, there would also exist a parallel universe in which he came down the east side. But surely that's just a metaphor, said Glenda a student Kyle sometimes thought he might have pursued had he not already met Heather. Surely there's really only one universe, no? Or, said D'Annunzio, a biker type, who always seemed out of place in class, even if another universe does exist, there's no way to prove it, so it's not a falsifiable hypothesis, and therefore not real science. Papineau grinned broadly. You know, he said, "'If this were a nightclub performance, "'people would accuse me of having planted the two of you in the audience. "'Let's look at that question. "'Is there any direct evidence that multiple universes might exist? Rube's hand. will you get the lights, please?' "'A student in the back stood up and turned off the lights. "'Papineau moved next to a slide projector sitting on a metal cart. "'He turned it on. "'A diagram appeared on the screen.' This picture shows some experimental apparatus, said Papineau. At the top we have a light bulb. In the middle there's a bar representing a horizontal wall, as seen from above. You see those two breaks in the bar? Those are two vertical slits that go right through the wall, one on the left and one on the right. He used a small telescoping pointer to indicate these and at the bottom we have a horizontal line representing a sheet of photographic film seen edge on from above the wall in the middle is like queen's park and the two slits are like the two possible paths around the parliament buildings one on the east and one on the west he paused while the students digested this now what happens when we turn on the light bulb he pushed a key the carousel clicked around and a new slide came on. The photographic film at the bottom showed a zebra pattern of light and dark lines. You all know what that is from high school physics, right? It's an interference pattern. Light from the bulb, travelling like a wave, passes through the two slits, which behave now like two separate light sources, each with waves of light emanating from it well, when the two sets of waves crash against the photographic plate some of the waves cancel out leaving dark areas and others reinforce each other making the bright bands some students nodded but you also know from high school physics that light doesn't always behave like a wave sometimes it behaves like a particle too and of course we call particles of light photons now what happens if we turn down the power going to the light bulb? What happens when the power is turned down so low that photons are coming out of the light bulb one at a time? Anyone? A red-headed woman held up her hand. Yes, Tina, said Papineau. Well, if only one photon is going through, then it should make one little spot of light on the photographic film, assuming it finds its way through one of the slits. Papineau smiled that's what you'd expect, yes but even when photons are released one at a time you still get the light and dark bands you still get interference patterns but how can you get interference if there's only one particle passing through at a time, asked Kyle I mean, what's the particle interfering with? Papineau raised his index finger that is the question and there are two possible answers The one that's simply weird is that in transit between the light bulb and the film, the single photon breaks up into a series of waves, some of which go through one slit and some through the other, forming the interference pattern. But the other answer, the really interesting answer, is that the photon never breaks up, but rather remains a discrete particle, and as such it has no choice but to go through only one of the two possible slits. "'in this universe. "'But just as you, Carl, could have taken either route around Queen's Park, "'so the photon could have taken the path through either slit. "'And in a parallel universe it took the other path.' "'But how come we see the interference pattern?' asked Anansio, chewing gum as he spoke. "'I mean, if we stood south of the Parliament buildings, "'we'd never see two versions of graves, one coming around the east side and one around the west.' Excellent question, crowed Papineau. The answer is that the two-slit experiment is a very special example of parallel universes. The original single universe splits into two universes once the photon encounters the slits, but the two universes exist separately only so long as the photon is travelling. Since it makes no difference now or ever which path the photon actually took, "'the universes collapse back together into a single universe. "'The only evidence that the two universes ever existed "'is the interference pattern left behind on the film. "'But what if it does make a difference which slit was chosen?' "'asked Rupchand from the back. (laughs) "'Any experiment you can devise in which the choice of slit actually matters, "'indeed, in any experiment in which you can detect which slit the photon went through, "'you don't get the interference pattern.' If it matters at all, the universes never stitch back together into one. They continue on as two separate universes. It had been a heady class, as all of Papineau's were. And it had also been a metaphor that Carl carried with him throughout his life—choices, branching paths. Back then, back in 1996, even though he and Heather were still students, he knew which choice he wanted— He wanted to live in the universe in which they did have a baby. And so that November, their first child, Mary Lorraine Graves, was born. CHAPTER FIVE Kyle was walking along Wilcox Street, heading from New College back toward Mullen Hall, but he was accosted before he crossed St. George. "'Sir, excuse me, sir, pardon me.' "'Yes, you.' "'Dale Wong, City TV. "'We'd like to ask you a question.' "'A streeter?' said Kyle, the word coming to him from somewhere. "'The young man with the camcorder was amused. "'Exactly, sir. A streeter. "'Here's our question. "'Today is the tenth anniversary of the receipt of the first radio message from Alpha Centauri. "'Is it really?' "'Yes, sir. "'How has it affected you this past decade, "'knowing that there's intelligent life elsewhere in the universe?' "'Kyle frowned, thinking. "'Well, that's a good question. "'It's certainly interesting. "'My wife actually works on trying to decode the alien radio messages. "'But how has it changed you, changed your outlook?' "'Well, I suppose it gives me a little perspective on things. "'You know, all our problems don't amount to much, "'compared to the limitless universe.' "'The words rang false as they came out. "'Kyle paused long enough.' He knew that the man wouldn't be able to use the video clip without editing. No, no, that's not it. You want the truth? It hasn't changed a damn thing. No matter how big the universe gets, we're always looking inside. Thank you, sir. Thank— Ma'am? Ma'am? A moment of your time, please. Kyle continued to walk. He hadn't really thought about it before, but his current research project clearly had had its genesis— back in the spring of 1996, the same day he learned that Heather was pregnant. So, Professor Papineau had said, the interference patterns that result when a single photon passes through two slits might be proof of the existence of multiple universes. But what, you may ask, does this have to do with computing? He beamed at his seminar students. Well, remember our example of Carl coming to work? In one universe he walks around the east side of Queen's Park, in the other he walks around the west side. Now, Kyle, suppose your boss had asked you to solve two problems before you came into work, and, having never overcome your student ways, you've left them both to the last moment. There's time to puzzle out the answer to just one of them in your head as you walk to work. Let's say that if you went down the west side you'd spend your time solving problem A, "'and if you went down the east side, "'you'd spend your time solving Problem B. "'Is there any way, without slowing down "'or taking the journey around the Parliament buildings twice, "'that by the time you got to work, "'you'd have the answers to both problems?' Carl was sure he'd had a blank expression. "'Anyone?' asked Papineau, bushy eyebrows raised. "'I'm surprised you think Graves would come up with even one answer,' "'said D'Annunzio.' snickers from several students Papineau smiled well there is a way said the professor you know the old saying two heads are better than one well if our Kyle the one from this universe who went down the west side and who solved problem A could join back up with the other Kyle the one from the parallel universe who went down the east side and solved problem B then he'd have both answers a hand went up Glenda but when talking about the photon and the slits you said the only way the two universes could rejoin is if there was no way to tell which slit the photon had taken in each universe exactly but if we could devise a method by which it made no difference whatsoever which way Karl went in this universe indeed a method by which Karl himself didn't know which way he had gone and no one saw him during his journey then at the end of it all the two universes might stitch back together. But in the rejoined universe, Kyle would know the answer to both problems, even though he'd really had only time to solve one of them. Papineau grinned at the class. Welcome, he said, to the world of quantum computing. He paused. Of course, there were really more than two possible universes for Kyle. He could have stayed home. He could have driven to work. He could have taken a cab. Likewise, it's possible to envision the light bulb experiment with dozens or even hundreds of slits. Well, suppose each of the photons coming off the light bulb represented a single bit of information. Remember, all computing is done with glorified abacuses. We actually move things around in order to compute, whether it's pebbles or atoms or electrons or photons. But if each of those things could simultaneously be in multiple places at once across parallel universes, extraordinarily complex computing problems could be solved very, very quickly. Consider, for instance, the factoring of numbers. How do we do that? Essentially by trial and error, although there are a few tricks that help. If we want to determine the factors of eight, we start dividing numbers into it. We know that one goes evenly into eight. It goes evenly into every whole number. What about two? Yes, it's a factor. It goes in four times. Three? No, it doesn't go in evenly. Four? Yes, it goes in twice. That's how we do it. By brute force, computing, testing every possible factor in turn. But as numbers get bigger, the number of factors they have get bigger. Earlier this year, a network of 1,600 computers succeeded in finding all the factors of a 129-digit number, the largest number ever factored. The process took eight months. But imagine a quantum computer, one that was in touch with all the possible alternative computers in parallel universes. And imagine a program that factors large numbers by working on all the possible solutions simultaneously. Peter Shaw, a mathematician at AT AT&T Bell Laboratories, has worked out a program to do just that. It would try every possible factor of the big number simultaneously by testing just one possible factor in each of many parallel universes. The program outputs its results as interference patterns sent to a piece of photographic film. Shaw's algorithm would cause those numbers that aren't factors to cancel out in the interference pattern, leaving darkness. The patterns of light and dark would form a sort of barcode that could be read to indicate which numbers actually are factors of the big number you started with. And since the calculations are performed across parallel universes in the time it takes for our universe to test any one number, all the other numbers are tested as well, and we have the result. So long as it makes no difference which number our own computer calculated, the results should be achieved almost instantaneously. What normal computers took eight months to do, quantum computers could do in a matter of seconds. But there's no such thing as a quantum computer, said Kyle. Papineau nodded at him. That's right. At least not yet. But someday someone is going to build a quantum computer, and then we'll know for sure. Chapter 6 Kyle and Heather had dinner together every Monday night. They'd been separated for a year now. It had never been intended to be permanent, and they'd never mentioned the D-word. They just needed some time, they both felt, to come to terms with Mary's death. They'd both been on edge, sniping at each other, little things that shouldn't have mattered at all, escalating into huge fights, unable to console each other, unable to comprehend why it had happened. They'd never missed a Monday dinner together, and although tensions were high since Becky's visit four days ago, Carl assumed that Heather would show up at their usual restaurant, a Swiss chalet franchise a few blocks from their house. Carl stood outside, enjoying the warm evening breeze. He couldn't bring himself to go in yet. Heather's car wasn't in the lot, and if she didn't show... The embarrassment would be too much. At about six-forty, ten minutes late, Heather's powder-blue skimmer floated into the lot. Still, things were different. For an entire year now they had greeted each other on Monday nights with a quick kiss, but this time, this time they both hesitated. They entered the restaurant, Kyle holding the door for Heather. The server tried to seat them beside another couple, "'even though there was no one else in the place. "'Kyle hated that at the best of times, "'and this evening he did protest. "'We'll sit over there,' he said, "'pointing to a distant corner. "'The server acquiesced, "'and they were escorted to a booth at the back. "'Kyle ordered red wine. "'Heather asked for a glass of the house white. "'I was beginning to think you weren't coming,' said Kyle. "'Heather nodded, but her face was impassive. The lamp hanging above their table made her normally pleasant features look severe. I'm sorry I was late. There was silence for a time. I don't know what we're going to do about this, said Carl. Heather looked away. Me neither. I swear to you, please, said Heather, cutting him off. Please. Carl nodded slowly. He was quiet for a moment longer than... "'I went to see Zach on Saturday.' "'Heather looked apprehensive. "'And?' "'And nothing. "'I didn't get into a fight with him, I mean. "'We talked a bit. "'I wanted him to agree to come to the forensics lab at the university. "'I was going to take a lie detector test, to "'prove that I didn't do it.' "'And?' said Heather again. "'He refused. "'Kyle lowered his eyes, looking at the paper placemat,' "'with the current month's chicken promotion illustrated on it. "'He looked up again and sought Heather's eyes. "'I could do the same thing for you,' he said. "'I could prove my innocence.' "'Heather opened her mouth, but immediately closed it. "'It was a turning point, a crux. Carl knew it, and he was sure Heather knew it too. "'The future depended on what would happen next.' She had to be thinking it all through. If he was innocent, if he was innocent, she must know he'd never be able to forgive her for demanding proof, for her lack of faith. If he was innocent, then surely their marriage should survive this crisis. They'd both thought they would get back together again sooner or later, if not by the beginning of the coming school year, surely by its end. If he was innocent, The marriage should survive, but if Heather had doubt, and admitted it, admitted the possibility, would he ever be able to hold her again, to love her again? When he'd needed her most, had she believed in him? No, she said, closing her eyes. No, that won't be necessary. She looked at him. I know you didn't do anything. "'Kyle kept his expression neutral. "'He knew she must be searching his face for any sign "'that he thought the words might be insincere. "'Thank you,' he said softly. "'The server returned with their drinks. "'They ordered a grilled chicken breast and plain-baked potato for Kyle, "'the quarter-barbecue chicken dinner with fries for Heather. "'Did anything else happen with Zack? asked Heather. "'Kyle took a sip of his wine. "'He told me that Becky is in therapy.' "'Heather nodded. "'Yes.' "'You knew that?' "'She started seeing someone after Mary died.' "'It was the same therapist Mary had been going to,' said Kyle. "'Zach told me that.' "'Mary was in therapy too?' "'Good God, I didn't know that.' "'I was shocked too,' said Kyle. "'You'd think she'd have told me.' "'Or me.' said Kyle forcefully. Of course, said Heather. Of course. She paused. I wonder if it had anything to do with Rachel. Who? Rachel Cohen, remember? Mary's friend. She died of leukemia when Mary was eighteen. Oh, yes. Poor girl. Mary had been quite distraught about that. Maybe she started seeing a therapist over it. A little grief counselling, you know. Why wouldn't she have come to you? asked Kyle. "'Well, I'm hardly a clinician. "'Besides, no girl wants her mother for a therapist, "'and I suspect she wouldn't have wanted anyone "'I might have recommended either.' "'So how would Mary find a therapist?' asked Carl. "'I don't know,' said Heather. "'Maybe Dr. Redmond recommended somebody.' "'Lloyd Redmond had been Carl's physician, "'and later the whole family's physician, for nearly thirty years. "'I'll call him in the morning and see what I can find out.' "'Their meals arrived.' They ate mostly in silence, and afterward went to their separate homes. The phone rang in Carl's lab at 10.30 Tuesday morning. A couple of grad students were present, working quietly inside Cheetah's console. The console's faceplate, including Cheetah's eyes, had been removed, and was leaning now against the curving outer wall. The caller ID showed it was Heather calling from her office in Sydney Smith Hall, on the west side of St. George Street. "'a block farther south.' "'I was right,' said Heather. "'Dr. Redmond did recommend a therapist to Mary "'several months before she died.' "'What's the therapist's name?' "'Lydia Gurdjieff.' "'She spelled the unusual last name.' "'Ever heard of her?' "'No, I've checked the online directory for the O.P.A. "'She's not listed.' "'I'm going to see her,' said Carl. "'No,' said Heather.' I think i should go alone kyle opened his mouth to object but then realized his wife was right not only was he the enemy in this therapist's eyes but heather not kyle was the trained psychologist when he asked today if possible thanks said kyle heather might have shrugged or nodded or even smiled encouragingly there was no way for kyle to tell Sometimes he wished videophones had taken off. "'Hello, Miss Gurdjieff,' said Heather, walking into the therapist's consulting-room. The walls were covered with blue wallpaper, but it was curling a bit at the seams, revealing the painted surface beneath. "'Thank you for seeing me.' "'My pleasure, Miss Davis. "'Or may I call you Heather?' Heather wasn't taking any special pains to disguise her identity. She used her own last name— "'but Rebecca and Mary had shared Carl's last name. "'There was no reason to think this Gurdjieff person would make the connection. "'Heather is fine. "'Well, Heather, we don't often have a cancellation, "'but I guess today is your lucky day. "'Please have a seat, or use the couch if you prefer.' "'Heather considered for a moment, then, with a little shrug, lay down on the couch. "'Even with all her training in psychology, "'she had never actually lain on a therapist's couch before,' "'and it seemed an experience not to be missed. "'I'm not sure why I'm here,' Heather said. "'I haven't been sleeping well.' "'She looked beyond the therapist to the walls. "'There were framed diplomas on them. "'The highest degree seemed to be a master's.' "'That's surprisingly common,' said Gurdjieff. "'Her voice was warm and pleasant, "'with perhaps a trace of a Newfoundland accent. "'I also don't have much of an appetite,' said Heather.' Gurdjieff nodded and took a data pad off her desk. She started writing on it with a stylus. And you think there's a psychological cause for this? At first I thought it was some kind of flu, said Heather, but it's been going on for months. Gurdjieff made another note on her pad. She was putting too much pressure on the stylus. It made a slight chalk-on-blackboard screech against the glass plate. You're married, aren't you? Heather nodded. She still wore a plain wedding band. Children? Two boys, said Heather, although she regretted it at once. She probably should have included at least one daughter. Sixteen and nineteen. And they're not the source of the problem? I don't think so. Are your parents still alive? Heather saw no reason not to answer that truthfully. No. I'm sorry. Heather tilted her head. "'accepting the comment. "'They talked for another half-hour, "'the therapist's question seemingly innocuous. "'And then she said it. "'A classic case, really.' "'What?' asked Heather. "'Incest survivor.' "'What?' "'Oh, you don't consciously remember it. "'That's not at all unusual. "'But everything you've said suggests that's what happened.' "'Heather tried to keep her tone flat.' That's ridiculous. Denial is natural, said Gurdjieff. I don't expect you to come to terms with it right away. But I wasn't abused. Your father is dead, you said? Yes. Did you cry at his funeral? That struck a little too close to home. No, Heather said softly. It was him, wasn't it? It was nobody. You didn't have a much older brother, did you? Or a grandfather who visited a lot? Maybe an uncle you were often alone with? No. Then it was probably your father. Heather tried to make her voice sound firm. He couldn't possibly have done anything like that. Gurdjieff smiled sadly. That's what everyone thinks at first. But you're suffering from what we call post-traumatic stress disorder. It's the same thing that happened to those vets from the Gulf and Colombian wars. Only instead of reliving the memories... "'You're oppressing them.' "'Gurdjieff touched Heather's hand. "'Look, it's nothing to be ashamed of. "'You have to remember that. "'It's nothing you did. "'It was not your fault.' "'Heather was quiet. "'Gurdjieff lowered her voice. "'It's more common than you think,' she said. "'It happened to me, too.' "'Really?' "'The therapist nodded. "'From when I was six or so "'until when I was fourteen. "'Not every night.' but often. "'That's... that's terrible. "'I'm so sorry for you.' "'Gurdjieff held up her left hand. "'Don't feel sorry for me, or for yourself. "'We have to take strength from this. "'What did you do?' "'It's too bad your father is dead. "'You can't confront him. "'That's the best thing, you know, "'confronting your abuser. "'It's enormously empowering. "'It's not for everyone, of course.' Some women are afraid to do it, afraid that they will end up being disinherited or cut off from the rest of their family. But when it works, it's terrific. Oh, said Heather, you've had other patients go through this? Many. Heather wasn't sure how hard to push it. Anyone recently? Well, I can't really talk about other patients. Oh, of course not, of course not. "'Just in general terms, I mean. "'What happens? An average case?' "'Well, one of my patients did confront her abuser just last week.' "'Heather felt her heart begin to race. "'She tried to be very careful.' "'Did it help him?' "'Her, actually?' "'Yes.' "'In what way? I mean, is she free of whatever was bothering her?' "'Yes.' "'How do you know? I mean, how can you tell it made a difference?' "'Well, this woman—I guess it won't hurt to tell you she had an eating disorder. "'That's common in cases like this. "'The other common symptom is trouble sleeping, like what you're having. "'Anyway, she was bulimic, but she hasn't had to purge since then. "'See, what she really wanted to purge, "'what she really wanted to get out of her system, is out now. "'But I didn't think I was abused. "'Was she like me, unsure?' At first, yes. It was only later that it all came out. It'll come out for you too. We'll find the truth and we'll face it together. I don't know. I don't think this happened. And... and I mean... come on. Incest? Sexual abuse? That's the stuff of tabloids, no? I mean, it's practically a cliché. You're so wrong. It's staggering, said Gurdjieff sharply and it's not just you it's society in general you know in the 1980s when we really started talking about sexual abuse and incest the topic did get a great deal of exposure and for people like me people who had been abused it was a breath of fresh air we weren't a dirty little secret anymore the horrible things that had been done to us were out in the open and we finally understood that it wasn't our fault but it's an unpleasant truth and people like you, people who saw their neighbours and their fathers and their churches in a whole new light, were uncomfortable with it. You liked it better when it was hidden away, something you didn't have to deal with. You want to force it into the background, marginalise it, remove it from the agenda, prevent it from being discussed. Heather thought about this. Incest, pedophilia, child abuse... "'They were all things that might naturally come up in psychology classes. "'But how often did she mention them? "'A passing reference here, a brief aside there, "'and then moving on quickly before it got too unpleasant, "'to Maslow's drive for self-actualization, "'to Adler's introverts and extroverts, "'to Skinner's operant conditioning.' "'Perhaps,' she said, Maybe you're right, said Gurdjieff, apparently willing to concede a little if Heather was also willing to do so. Maybe nothing did happen in your past, but why don't we find out for sure? But I don't remember any abuse. Surely you have some anger toward your father. Heather felt it hitting home again. Of course, but there's no way he could have done anything to me. It's natural that you don't remember it, said Gurdjieff almost no one does but it's there, hidden beneath the surface repressed she paused again you know, my own memories weren't repressed for whatever reason they weren't but my sister Daphne she's two years younger than me hers were repressed I tried to talk about this with her a dozen times and she said I was nuts and then one day, out of the blue when we were both in our twenties she phoned me it had come back to her At last the memories, which she had suppressed for fifteen years, had come back. We confronted our father together. A pause. As I said, it's too bad you can't confront your father, but you will need to deal with this to get it out into the open. Eulogies are one way. Eulogies? You write out what you would have said to your father had you confronted him while he was still alive. Then you present it at his graveside. Gurdjieff held up a hand as if she realised how macabre this sounded. Don't worry. We'd do it during the daytime. It's a wonderful way to bring closure. I'm not sure, said Heather. I'm not sure about any of this. Of course you're not. That's perfectly normal. But trust me, I've seen lots of cases like yours. Most women have been abused, you know. Heather had seen studies suggesting as much, but to get the most conclusion, they included everything down to having to kiss a disliked relative on the cheek and schoolyard tussles with little boys. Gurdjieff looked up above Heather. Heather rolled her head and saw that there was a large wall-clock mounted behind her. "'Look,' said Gurdjieff, "'we're almost out of time, "'but we've made a really good start. "'I think we can lick this thing together, Heather.' If you're willing to work with me. Chapter 7 Heather called Kyle and asked him to come by the house. When he arrived, about 8 p.m., after they'd both eaten separately, he took a seat on the couch, and Heather sat down in the easy chair opposite him. She took a deep breath, wondering how to begin, then just dived in. I think this may be a case of false memory syndrome. Ah, said Kyle, sounding sage, the coveted FMS. Heather knew her husband too well. You don't have the slightest idea of what I'm talking about, do you? Well, no. Do you know what repressed memories are? In theory, that is. Oh, repressed memories? Sure, sure, I've heard something about that. "'There have been some court cases, right?' "'Heather nodded. "'The first one was ages ago, back in—oh, what was it now—1989 or so. "'A woman named—let me think. "'I taught this once before. "'It'll come back. "'A woman named Eileen Franklin, who was twenty-eight or twenty-nine, "'claimed to suddenly remember having seen the rape and murder of her best friend 20 years previously.' Now, the rape-murder was an established fact. The body had been found shortly after the crime was committed. But the shocking thing wasn't just that Eileen suddenly remembered seeing the crime being committed, but she also suddenly remembered who had done it. Her own father. Kyle frowned. What happened to the father? Heather looked at him. He was convicted. It was later overturned, though, but on a technicality. "'Was there corroborating evidence, "'or did the original conviction rest solely on the daughter's testimony?' "'Heather shrugged a little. "'Depends how you look at it. "'Eileen seemed to be aware of things about the crime that weren't generally known. "'That was taken as evidence of her father's guilt. "'But upon investigation it was shown that most of the supposedly telling details "'had indeed been reported in the press around the time the little girl had been killed.' Of course, Eileen wasn't reading newspapers when she was eight or nine, but she could have looked them up later at a library. Heather chewed her lower lip, remembering, But you know, now that I think about it, some of the details she reported were in the newspaper accounts, but were wrong in those accounts. Kyle sounded confused. What? She remembered, or claimed to remember, things that turned out to be untrue. For instance, the little girl who was killed was wearing two rings, a silver one and a gold one. Only the gold one had a stone in it, but one of the newspapers reported that the stone was in the silver ring, and that's exactly what Eileen said when she told the police about the crime. Heather held up a hand. Of course, that's a trivial detail, and anyone remembering anything that long ago is likely to mix up some facts. But you didn't just say repressed memories. You mentioned false memories. Well, it's either one or the other, and that's the problem. In fact, it's been a bone of contention in psychology for decades now, the question of whether the memory of something traumatic can be repressed. Repression itself is an old concept. It's the basis for psychoanalysis, after all. "'You force the repressed thought into the light of day, "'and whatever neuroses you've got should clear up. "'But millions of people who've had traumatic experiences "'say the problem is the opposite. "'They never forget what's happened. "'They all say things like, "'Not a day goes by when I don't think about my car blowing up, "'or I have constant nightmares about Columbia.' "'Heather lowered her eyes. "'Certainly I've never forgotten.' and never will forget the sight of Mary lying dead in the bathroom. Kyle nodded slowly. His voice was soft. Me neither. Heather took a moment to compose herself. But those things—a war, a car exploding, even a child dying— they are common enough occurrences. They're not unthinkable. Indeed, there's not a parent alive who doesn't fret about something happening to one of their children— But what if something occurs that is so unexpected, so out of the ordinary, so shocking, that the mind just can't deal with it? Like a little girl seeing her daddy rape and murder her best friend. How does the mind react then? Maybe it does wall it off. There certainly are some psychiatrists, and no end of putative incest survivors, who believe that. But Kyle raised his eyebrows but what? but there are many psychologists who believe that s- that simply can't happen that there's no mechanism for repression and so when traumatic memories suddenly appear years or decades after the supposed event they have to be false memories we've been debating this in psychology for a quarter century or more now without ever coming up with a solid answer Karl took a deep breath Then let it out slowly. So what does it come down to? Humans can either shut out memories of traumatic events that really did happen, or we can have vivid memories of things that never occurred. Heather nodded. I know. Neither is an appealing idea. No matter which one you accept, and of course there's a chance that both happen at different times, It means that our memories and our sense of who we are and where we came from are much more fallible than we'd like to believe. Well, I know for a fact that Becky's memories are bogus, but what I don't understand is where such memories could come from. The most common theory is that they're implanted. Implanted? He said it as if he'd never heard the word before. Heather nodded. In therapy... I've seen the basic principle demonstrated myself with children. You have a child visit you every day for a week. On the first day, you ask him how things went at the hospital after he cut his finger. He says, I never went to the hospital. And that's true, he didn't. But you ask him again tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day, and by the end of the week, the child is convinced that he did go to the hospital. "'He'll be able to tell you a detailed, consistent story about his trip there, "'and he'll really believe it happened. "'Kind of like Biff Loman, "'Who?' "'Death of a salesman. "'Biff wasn't a young kid, but, as he says to his father, "'You blew me so full of hot air, I could never stand taking orders from anybody.' "'He really came to be convinced by his father "'that he'd had a much better job in a company than the lowly position he'd actually held.' Well, that can happen. Memories can be implanted, even just through suggestion and constant repetition. And if a therapist augments that with hypnosis, really unshakable false memories can be created. But why on earth would a therapist do that? Heather looked grim. To quote an old psych department joke, there are many routes to mental health, but none so lucrative as Freudian analysis. Kyle frowned. He was quiet for several seconds, apparently contemplating whether to ask another question. And at last he did. I'm not trying to be argumentative here, but your endorsement of my innocence has been less than ringing. Why do you think Becky's memories might be false? Because her therapist suggested that my father might have molested me. Oh, said Kyle, And then, oh. Chapter 8 After Carl had gone home, Heather sat in the darkened living room, thinking. It was past time she went to bed. She had a 9 a.m. meeting tomorrow. Damn, maybe Carl's insomnia was contagious. She was bone-tired, but too nervous to sleep. She'd said something, words tumbling out without thinking to Kyle and now she was trying to decide if she'd really believed it. But those things a war a car exploding even a child dying they are common enough occurrences. They're not unthinkable. Indeed there's not a parent alive who doesn't fret about something happening to one of the children. But it wasn't an undefined something that had happened to Mary. no Mary had taken her own life, slitting her wrists. Heather hadn't been expecting that, or even fearing it. It had been as shocking to her as, as. well, as what Eileen Franklin had supposedly seen, the rape and murder of her childhood friend by her own father. But Heather hadn't walled off the memories of what happened to Mary, because... because... Perhaps suicide was not unthinkable to her. Not, of course, that Heather had ever contemplated taking her own life. Not seriously, anyway. No, no, that wasn't it. But suicide had touched her life once before in the past. She did not often think of it. In fact, she hadn't thought of it in years. Had the memories been repressed? Had recent stress brought them to light? No, surely not. Surely she could have recalled it all at any time, and had just been choosing not to. It had been so long ago, and she had been so young. Young and foolish. Heather had been eighteen, fresh out of high school, leaving the small town of Vegreville, Alberta, for the first time, coming halfway across the continent to giant cosmopolitan Toronto. She'd tried so many new things that wild first year, and she'd taken an introductory astronomy course. She'd always loved the stars, crystal points above the flat prairie sky. Heather had fallen head over heels in love with the teaching assistant, Josh Hanukkah. Josh was six years older, a grad student, thin, with delicate surgeon-like hands, soulful, pale blue eyes, and the gentlest, kindest demeanour of anyone she'd ever met. Of course, it hadn't been love, not really but it felt something like it at the time. She'd so wanted to be loved, to be with a man, to experiment, to experience. Josh had seemed, not indifferent, but ambivalent, perhaps, to Heather's obvious attention. They'd met at the beginning of the academic year in September. By Canadian Thanksgiving, five weeks later, they were lovers, and it was everything she could have hoped for. "'Josh was sensitive and gentle and caring, "'and afterward he would talk with her for hours "'about humanity, about ecology, about whales, "'about rainforests, and about the future. "'They dated off and on for much of that academic year. "'No commitment, though. "'Josh didn't seem to want one, "'and, truth be told, Heather didn't either. "'She'd been looking to broaden her experience.' Not to settle down. In February, Josh had had to go away. The National Research Council of Canada operated a 46 metre radio telescope at Lake Travis in Algonquin Park, a huge area of untamed forest and Precambrian shield in northern Ontario. Josh was slated to spend a week there, helping monitor the equipment. And he'd gone. But the other astronomer who was there with him had gotten sick, appendicitis. An hour ambulance had taken him from the telescope building to a hospital in Huntsville. Josh had stayed on, but then snowstorms had prevented anyone from coming up to join him. He'd been alone with the giant telescope for a week, snowed in. It shouldn't have been any problem. There'd been food and water enough or two for the entire duration of the planned stay— but when the roads finally were cleared and someone could get up to the observatory from Toronto, they found Josh dead. He'd killed himself. Heather had had no special status. The police never notified her directly. She'd first learned about it from an article in the Toronto Star. They said he'd killed himself over quarrels with his lover. Heather had known that Josh had a roommate. She'd met Barry... A philosophy student with a closely cropped beard several times, but she hadn't realized just how close Josh and Barry had been, or how much of a well, if not a pawn, certainly a complicating factor in their troubled relationship she'd been. No, she didn't often think of that, but no doubt it had had an impact. Perhaps she was less surprised than most mothers would be when her own daughter had turned out to have hidden demons and undisclosed issues, when her own daughter had taken her life. And if it hadn't been a great unthinkable shock, then she couldn't have repressed the memories of Mary's death, regardless of how much she wanted to. Kilometers away, Kyle lay in bed in his one-bedroom apartment, also trying to get to sleep, false memories, or repressed memories. Was there anything in his life that had been so traumatic, so painful, that if he could, he would have shut out its memory? Of course there was. Becky's accusation. Mary's suicide. The two worst things that had ever happened to him. Yes, if repression were possible, surely he'd repress those. Unless, unless, as Heather said, Even they weren't sufficiently unthinkable to trigger the suppression mechanism. He racked his brain trying to recall other examples of things he might have suppressed. He was conscious of what an impossible task that was, trying to remember things that he wouldn't allow himself to remember. But then it hit him, something from his childhood, something he'd never conceived of, something that had cost him his faith in God. Kyle had been brought up in Canada's United Church, an easy-going Protestant denomination. But he had drifted away from it over the years, and today was seen in a hall of worship only when weddings or funerals required it. Oh, in moments of quiet reflection he thought there might be some sort of Creator. But ever since that day, when he was fifteen, he had been unable to believe in the benevolent God his church had preached. Kyle's parents were out for the evening, and he had decided to stay up as long as he could. He didn't get to play with a remote when his father was home, but now he was flipping channels madly, hoping for something titillating on late-night TV. Still, when he came across a nature documentary, he paused. You never knew when some topless African woman was going to wander into the scene. He saw a female lion stalking a herd of zebras beside a waterhole. "'The lion's tawny hide was almost invisible in the tall yellow grasses. "'There were hundreds of zebras, "'but she was interested only in the animals at the margin. "'The narrator spoke in hushed tones, "'like the commentator on his dad's golf shows, "'as if words added long after the footage was shot "'could somehow disturb the unfolding of the scene. "'The lioness looks for a straggler,' he said. "'She wants to pick out a weak member of the herd.' Carl sat up. "'This was much more vivid than the ancient, grainy, "'wild kingdom episodes he'd seen before. "'The lion continued to stalk. "'The background noises consisted of zebra hooves "'falling on baked earth, "'the rustling of grass, the calls of birds, "'and the droning of insects. "'The shadows were short, hugging the animals' legs "'like shy toddlers clutching their parents.' Suddenly the lion surged forward, legs pumping, mouth hanging wide open. She leapt onto a zebra's haunch, biting deeply into it. The other zebras began to gallop away, clouds of dust rising in their wake, the footfalls like thunder. Birds wheeled into flight, squawking loudly. The attacked animal now had stripes of red running between its black and white ones. It fell to its knees, propelled down by the impact of the lion. The blood mixed with the parched soil, forming a maroon-coloured mud. The lion was hungry, or at least thirsty, and it bit deeply into the zebra's flesh again, scooping out a wet mound of muscle and connective tissue. All the while the zebra's head continued to move, and its eyelids beat up and down. The poor thing was alive, thought Kyle. It's bleeding all over the savannah. It's about to be eaten.' "'and it's still alive. "'A zebra. "'Genus equus,' they'd said in science class, "'just like a horse. "'Karl had done some riding at summer camp. "'He knew how intelligent horses were, "'how sensitive they were, how feeling they were. "'A zebra couldn't be that different. "'The animal had to be in agony, "'had to be panicked, had to be terrified. "'And it hit him. Fifteen years old, it hit him like a ton of bricks.' It wasn't just this zebra, of course. It was almost all zebras, and Thompson's gazelles, and wildebeests, and giraffes. And it wasn't just Africa. It was almost all prey animals anywhere in the world. Animals didn't die of old age. They didn't quietly expire after long, pleasant lives. They didn't pass on, unaided. No. They were torn apart, often limb from limb hemorrhaging severely, usually still conscious, still aware, still sensing. Death was a horrible, vicious act, almost without exception. Kyle's grandfather had passed away the year before. Kyle had never really thought about getting old himself, but suddenly the litany of terms he had heard his parents bat about during Granddad's illness came back to him. Heart disease, osteoporosis... Prostate cancer, cataracts, senility. Throughout all of history, most people had died horrible deaths too. Humans had generally not lived long enough to experience old age. Evolution, which, as he learned in school, had fine-tuned so much of human physiology, had simply had no opportunity to address these problems because almost no one in previous generations had lived long enough to experience them. "'the zebra gutted by the lion, "'the rat swallowed whole by the snake, "'the paralysed insect that felt itself being eaten alive from within by implanted larvae, "'all of them surely aware of what was happening to them, "'all of them tortured, no quick deaths, no merciful deaths. Karl had put down the remote after that, "'his interest in catching a glimpse of naked breasts gone.' He'd gone to bed, but had lain awake for hours. From that night on, whenever he tried to think of God, he found himself thinking instead of the zebra, its blood staining the waterhole. And to this day, try as he might, he'd been unable to repress that memory. Heather still wasn't able to sleep. She got up off the couch, went to the closet in the bedroom, and found some old photo albums for the last ten years or so she'd taken only filmless electronic photos but all of her early memories were stored as prints she sat back down on the couch one leg tucked up underneath her she opened one of the albums spread it on her lap the pictures were from fifteen or so years ago the turn of the century the old house on Merton God, how she missed that place "'She flipped a page. "'The photos were under acetate, "'held in place by a slight adhesive on the backing sheets. "'Becky's fifth birthday party, "'the last one they'd had in the Merton house. "'Balloons clinging to the wall with static electricity. "'Becky's friends, Jasmine and Brandy, "'such sophisticated names for such little girls, "'playing pin the tail on the donkey. "'Of course,' That was the party that Heather's sister, Doreen, had failed to show up at. Becky was crushed that her aunt hadn't made it. Heather was still angry about that. She'd bent over backward, making a fuss for Doreen's children's birthdays, baking cakes, picking out gifts and more. But Doreen had been too busy, begging off because some better offer had come along. She turned the page again and, well, fancy that. More pictures from the party. And there was Doreen. She had shown up after all. Heather peeled up the acetate sheet. It made a sucking sound as it pulled away from the adhesive backing. She then removed the print and read the caption she had written on the back Becky's Fifth B-Day. And just in case there was any doubt, there was the date printed by the photo finisher two days after Rebecca's actual birthday. She'd been mad at Doreen for a decade and a half over this. Doreen must have originally said she wasn't coming, but had actually shown up at the last minute. Heather had remembered the first part, but had completely forgotten the second. But there was the photograph, Doreen crouching down next to Becky. Photos didn't lie. Heather exhaled. "'Memory was an imperfect process. "'Of course the photos reminded her of things, "'but they were also telling her things she had never known "'or had completely forgotten. "'And yet how many rolls of film had she ever shot? "'Maybe a couple of hundred, "'meaning that scattered about in photo albums and shoeboxes "'there were a few thousand still frames from her life. "'Of course there were some home videos too,' "'and the electronic snapshots she'd saved to disk. "'And there were diaries and copies of old correspondence "'and little mementos and souvenirs "'that brought to mind events long past. "'But that was it. "'The rest was stored nowhere else but in her fallible brain. "'She closed the album. "'The word Memories was stamped in gold foil "'on its beige vinyl cover, "'but the gold was flaking off.' She looked across the room, down the hallway. Her computer was down there. When he'd still lived here, Kyle's had been in the basement. They had practised safe computing. Every morning when she went to work, she had a memory wafer in her purse containing the previous night's backup of Kyle's optical drive. The drive itself was almost crash-proof, but off-site storage was the only real insurance against loss due to fire or theft, Kyle, likewise, had always taken a memory wafer to his lab with Heather's backup on it. But what of real value was on their home computers? Financial records, all of which could be reconstructed with some effort, correspondence, most of it utterly ephemeral, student grades and other work related stuff, which all could be redone if need be. But for the most important events of their lives, there were no backups. No archives. Her gaze fell on a stereo cabinet. On top of it sat some framed photographs of herself, of Kyle, of Becky, and, yes, of Mary. What had really gone on? If only there were an archive of our memories, some infallible record of everything that had ever happened. Irrefutable proof, one way or the other. She closed her eyes. If only... CHAPTER NINE Kyle had a huge demonstration coming up. It was vitally important to the continued funding of his research project. He should have been worrying about that, but he wasn't. Instead, as always these days, he was preoccupied with Becky's accusation. So far, besides Heather and Zack, he'd spoken about it with no one except Cheetah. The only person he'd confided in wasn't a person at all. "'he might as well have unburdened himself to Mr. Coffey. "'Kyle needed to talk this over with somebody really human. "'He thought long and hard about whom he could confide in. "'No one in the computer science department would do. "'He wanted to leave that pristine, except for his locked talks with Cheetah. "'In the months ahead, his lab might be the only haven he would know.' "'Mullen Hall was right next door to the Newman Centre, "'which housed the Roman Catholic chaplaincy at U of T. "'Kyle thought briefly about speaking to the chaplain, "'but that wouldn't do either. "'The pattern was completely different, "'but a cassock was black and white, "'just like a zebra's hide. "'And then it hit him. "'The perfect person. "'Kyle didn't know him well, "'but they had served on three or four committees together over the years, "'and they'd eaten lunch together, or at least as part of the same group, "'in the faculty club from time to time. "'Kyle picked up his office phone and spoke the name he wanted. "'Internal Directory, Bentley, Stone.' "'The phone bleeped. "'Then a reedy voice came on. "'Hello? "'Stone? "'It's Kyle Graves. "'Who?' "'Oh, Kyle, sure, hi. "'Stone, I wonder if you might be free for drinks tonight?' "'Huh? "'Okay, sure. "'The Faculty Club?' "'No, no, somewhere off campus.' "'How about the waterhole on College Street?' said Stone. "'Know it?' "'I've walked past it before. "'You'll be coming from Mullin?' "'That's right. "'Stop by my office at five. Passard Hall, room 222, just like the old TV show. It's on the way. I'll be there. Carl clicked off, wondering what exactly he'd say to Stone. Heather entered her office at U of T. It wasn't huge, but at least universities had never adopted cubicles for academics. Normally she shared the office with Omar Amir, another associate prof. "'but he spent all of July and August "'at his family's cottage in the Kawarthas. "'So, for the summer at least, "'she had total privacy in which to think and work. "'Indeed, although some of the newer offices "'had frosted glass panes running floor-to-ceiling "'next to their thin doors, "'Heather and Omar's office was an old-fashioned inner sanctum "'with a solid wooden door that squeaked on hinges, "'and a window that looked east, "'out over the concrete courtyard between Sid Smith and St George Street. "'It also had drapes, once probably a rich burgundy, but now a pale brown. "'In the morning they had to be drawn to shield her from the rising sun. "'Yesterday's alien radio message was still displayed on her monitor. "'Since the interval between the beginnings of successive messages was thirty hours and fifty-one minutes,' Every message began almost eight hours later in the day than the one before. The most recent message had been received at 4.54 a.m. Eastern Time, Wednesday. Today's was expected to begin at 11.45 a.m. The messages were picked up by different nations' radio telescopes, depending on what part of Earth happened to be pointing at Alpha Centauri at the appropriate time but they were all posted as they were received to the World Wide Web. An additional orbital receiver was also always aimed at Alpha Centauri. Heather kept hoping that one day she would look at the latest message, and it would all make sense. She missed the simplicity of the first eleven messages, straightforward representations of the Pythagorean theorem and chemical formulas and planetary systems, Although, she had to admit, even those posed some puzzles. The chemicals specified by the formulas had been synthesized on earth, but no one had ever figured out what they were for. Heather got herself a mug of coffee and sat down to look again at yesterday's message. As always, the message was shown at two rectangular grids. Each message was sent as a string of a hundred thousand or so Binary digits over a period of two or three hours. The total number of digits in each message was always the product of two prime numbers, meaning that the digits could be arrayed in two possible ways. According to the header from the Alien Signal Center in Karachi, Pakistan, this message was 108,197 bits long. That number was the product of the prime numbers 257 and 421, which meant that the digits could be set up either as 257 rows of 421 columns, or as 421 rows of 257 columns. Sometimes one image looked more intuitively correct than the other. Squares or circles would appear in one, while the alternative decoding would simply result in a mishmash. But since no one had yet determined what the messages were supposed to represent, one couldn't be certain which was really the correct interpretation. When the messages had first started arriving in 2007, millions of people had pored over each one. But as the years had passed, the numbers had reduced. Although there was a popular screensaver that downloaded each day's message from the aliens and magnified various portions of it in turn, Heather knew there were now fewer than 300 researchers actively analysing each new message. The more correct-looking version of today's message showed three rectangles and two circles in what otherwise seemed to be a random sea of black and white squares the black squares represented zero bits and the white squares represented ones. Heather stared at it, frustrated. She felt sure she had to be missing something simple. Somewhere in the hundreds of millions of bits of data already received from Alpha Centauri, there must have been a Rosetta Stone, a key that would let all the other messages make sense. There were dissenting views, One researcher in Portugal had long argued that the key would come as the final message, not as one of the initial ones. That way the aliens would automatically weed out any races that lacked the patience required for interstellar communication. And others had opined that the alien senders were simply too alien, that we were incapable of communicating. A third camp argued that humanity simply wasn't bright enough, or advanced enough to figure out what was being said. The aliens might indeed still be on what they considered basics, but the material had already gone over the collective head of humanity. Heather was a Jungian psychologist. She believed that all human minds shared a vocabulary of symbols and archetypes that formed the underpinnings of thought. The centaurs, she felt sure, simply had a different set of underlying metaphors and symbols, and if she could figure out what those were, she could crack the code. She took a sip of coffee. This message was as baffling as the others. Maybe it was all a giant crossword puzzle, she thought. The grids of black and white squares certainly suggested that, although filling in the blanks was a human concept, possibly if she could wax Freudian for a moment, related to our sexual biology. Still, it wasn't the first time she'd wondered if the messages might be deliberately incomplete. Yin, but no yang. And the aliens were waiting for humanity to provide the compliment, to make it all whole. But, of course, we hadn't yet replied at all. Another popular interpretation was that the Rosetta Stone was being withheld until humanity did reply. There's an old concept in SETI that said that signals would likely be sent at a group of frequencies called the waterhole, between the emission frequency for hydrogen at 1,420 MHz and for hydroxyl at 1,667 MHz. Hydrogen, H, and hydroxyl, OH, are the components of water, H2O and Earth's atmosphere is most transparent to radio waves at that range of frequencies, while interstellar space is largely free of interference there. Since all life as we know it began in water, this area of the spectrum seemed a natural gathering place for those species looking to undertake interstellar communications. But the Centauri's signals weren't anywhere near the waterhole. Another example of what we expected to be a shared view of reality not turning out to be shared at all. Could there, Heather wondered, be other waterholes, other common grounds that would have to be shared by any being that existed in the same universe we did, regardless of its biology or the nature of its planet? She was supposed to meet her friend Judy for lunch at the faculty club at 12.15. She'd stick around until today's message began to arrive, then head off. Still ten minutes to go, "'Heather wasn't one to waste time. "'She had the latest issue of the Journal of Jungian Studies on her datapad. "'She started working her way through it. "'After a while the phone rang. "'Heather finished the paragraph in front of her, "'then absently reached for the handset. "'Hello? "'Heather? "'Did you forget?' "'Heather glanced at her watch. "'Oh, God! Sorry, Judy.' "'She looked over at her computer.' "'I was waiting for today's message. "'I was going to leave as soon as the incoming message signal sounded.' "'She moved over to her computer "'and told it to go directly to the alien signal centre homepage. "'Nothing. "'Judy, I can't make it. "'The alien message is late today.' "'Are you sure you've got the right time?' "'Positive. "'Look, I've got to go. Maybe lunch tomorrow?' "'Sure.' "'I'll call you.' "'Thanks.' "'Heather replaced the handset. "'As soon as she did, the phone rang again. "'She picked it up. "'Hello?' "'Heather,' said a different female voice, "'it's Salmi Van Horn.' "'Salmi, where are you? "'Here in Canada?' "'No, I'm still in Helsinki. "'Have you tried to download today's message?' "'Yes. "'There doesn't seem to be one coming through.' This has never happened before, has it? The centaurs have never missed a day, have they? Never. They've never even been late. Do you suppose the problem is at our end? Asked Salmi. Whose turn is it to receive the message? Arecibo is designated prime, isn't it? But there are backups, and... Oh, wait. Something's going up on the web page. I see it, too. Damn holograms. "'Ah, here it is. "'No technical malfunction at receiving end. "'Apparently no message was sent.' "'That can't be the end of the transmissions,' said Salmi. "'There has to be a key.' "'Maybe they got tired of waiting for us to reply,' said Heather. "'Maybe they won't send again until we do reply.' "'Or maybe—' "'What?' asked Heather. "'Drake equation. Final term.' Heather was quiet for a moment. Oh, she said softly. The Drake equation estimated the number of radio broadcasting civilizations in the galaxy. It had seven terms capital R subscript asterisk F subscript P N subscript E F subscript L F subscript I F subscript C capital L the rate of star formation times the fraction of stars with planets times the number of those planets that are suitable for life times the fraction of such planets on which life actually appears times the fraction of life forms that are intelligent times the fraction of such life forms that actually develop radio times times Big L the lifetime of such a civilization a civilization that had radio probably also had nuclear weapons or other equally dangerous things civilizations could be wiped out in a matter of moments certainly in less than a single 31 hour day they can't be dead said Sani they are either dead or they voluntarily stopped or the message is complete. There was a knock at the door. Heather covered the mouthpiece. Come in. The departmental assistant stuck his head in. Sorry to bother you, Professor Davis, but the CBC is on the phone. They want to talk to you about what happened to the aliens. Chapter 10. Kyle's lab was crowded. The dean leaned against one wall The department chair had his butt perched on the shelf, jutting out of the bottom of Cheetah's console. A lawyer from the university's patent unit sat in Kyle's usual chair, and the five grad students who worked on Kyle's quantum computing team were milling around as well. "'Okay,' said Kyle to the group. "'As you know, there's been a technique available since 1996 for producing simple quantum logic gates.' That technique was based on using nuclear magnetic resonance to measure atomic spins. But it was hampered by the fact that as you added bits, the output signal got exponentially weaker. A 30-bit quantum computer based on that principle produces output only one billionth as strong as that from a one-bit computer based on the same technique. Well, the method we're going to demonstrate today is, we believe the long-sought-after breakthrough, a quantum computer that, in theory, can employ an unlimited number of bits with no reduction in output quality. For our demo today, we are going to try to factor a randomly generated 300-digit number. To do that on the department's ECB 5000 would take approximately 100 years of constant calculation. If we are right, if this works... We'll have an answer about 30 seconds after I commence the experiment. He moved across the room. Our prototype quantum computer, which we call Democritus, has not just 30 registers, but 1,000, each of which consists of a single atom. The results will be a series of interference patterns which another computer, that one over there, will analyse and reduce to a numeric readout. He looked from face to face. All set? Let's go. Kyle walked over to the simple black console containing the Democritus computer. For the sake of drama, they'd built a large knife switch worthy of Frankenstein's lab into the side of the cabinet. Kyle pulled it down, its blade touching the metal contacts. A bright red LED came on and and everyone held their breath. Kyle kept watching Democritus, which, of course, was operating absolutely silently. Part of him missed the old days of clicking relays. Others were watching the digital clock mounted next to the red exit sign on the curving wall. Ten seconds went by. Then ten more. Then a final ten. Ten and then the LED went dark. Kyle let out his breath. Done, he said, heart pounding. He gestured for everyone to follow him across the room. There, another computer was analysing the output from Democritus. It'll take about five minutes to decode the interference pattern, said Kyle. He allowed himself a smile. If you're thinking that that's a lot longer than it took to produce the pattern you're right but we're now dealing with a conventional computer how many computations would it take to factor a number that big asked the dean her voice clearly intrigued approximately 10 to the 500th said carl and there's no way to do it in fewer steps she asked this isn't the case of democritus taking a shortcut car shook his head. No, it really does take ten to the five hundredth steps to factor a number that big. But Democritus didn't do that many steps. This Democritus didn't. In fact, it performed only one calculation, using a thousand atoms as the stones in its abacus, so to speak, to do so. But if all went well, ten to the power of five hundred other Democrituses in other universes will also each have done one calculation, involving, of course, a total of a thousand times ten to the power of five hundred atoms, which is ten to the power of five hundred and three atoms. And that, my friends, is a very significant number. How so? asked the department chair. Well, the precise value isn't important. What is important is how it relates to the number of atoms in our entire universe. "'Kyle smiled, waiting for the inevitable question. "'And how many atoms are there in our universe?' asked the dean. "'I called up Holtz over in the McLennan Physical Labs "'and asked her,' said Kyle. "'The answer, plus or minus a couple of orders of magnitude, "'is that there are ten to the eightieth atoms in the universe.' "'A few jaws dropped. "'Do you see?' said Kyle. "'In that thirty-second period,' To factor our test number, Democritus must have accessed many trillions of times more atoms than there are in our entire universe. Other earlier quantum computing demonstrations have never involved enough bits to actually exceed the quantity of atoms available to them in our universe, leaving open some doubt as to whether they'd actually accessed parallel worlds. But if this experiment works, the only answer will be that our Democritus worked in tandem with computers in other universes. The conventional computer they were standing in front of beeped, and one of its monitors came to life. Precisely two strings of numbers appeared on the screen, each dozens of digits long. Are those the first two factors? asked the lawyer, clearly anxious to start notarizing things. Kyle felt his heart sink. Ah, No, no, he swallowed. His stomach was roiling. I mean, yes, certainly. They are doubtless factors of our source number, but—but— One of Kyle's grad students looked at him and then said the words that, at that moment, Kyle himself couldn't get out. The display shouldn't have appeared until all the factors are ready, unless, by some miracle, the source number has only two factors— Then the experiment didn't work. The department head loomed in at the screen and placed his index finger on the last digit of the second number. It was a four. That's an even number, so there have got to be smaller factors that aren't displayed. He straightened up. What went wrong? Kyle was shaking his head. It worked, sort of. Our Democritus did do only one calculation— the other number must have come from a parallel universe. You can't prove that, said the Dean. Only two calculations means that only two thousand atoms were involved. I know, said Carl. He breathed out. Sorry, everyone. We'll keep working on it. The Dean frowned, presumably thinking of all the money that had already been spent. She left the room. The department head laid a hand briefly on Kyle's slumped shoulder before he, too, left, followed by the lawyer. Kyle looked at his grad students and shrugged. Nothing was going his way these days. After the students went home, Kyle sat down in his chair in front of Cheetah's console. "'I'm sorry,' said Cheetah. "'Yeah,' said Kyle. He shook his head. "'It should have worked.' "'I'm confident you'll figure out what went wrong.' "'I suppose.' "'He looked up at the print of Christus Hypercubus. "'But maybe it'll never work. "'Researchers have been trying to accomplish this "'for over twenty years without success.' "'He dropped his gaze to the floor. "'I just keep wasting my time on projects that never bear fruit.' "'Like me,' said Cheetah, without rancour. Carl said nothing. "'I have faith in you.' said Cheetah. Karl made a sound in his throat, a laugh aborted. "'What?' "'I don't know. Maybe that's the whole problem. Maybe it's my lack of faith.' "'You mean God is punishing you for being an atheist?' Kyle did laugh, but it was humorless. "'Not that kind of faith. I mean my faith in quantum physics.' He paused. "'When I was a grad student, nothing excited me like quantum mechanics.' It was mind-expanding, endlessly fascinating, but I felt sure that some day it would all click, you know, all make sense. Some day I'd really see, but I never have. Or I understand the equations in an abstract way, but I don't get it, you know. Maybe I don't even really believe it. You've lost me, said Cheetah. Carl spread his arms, trying to find a way to explain it. I was at a party once, and this fat guy comes in, and he's got a slice through a geode held to his forehead by a headband. I never asked about it. Guy comes in with something like that, you don't ask. But his companion, a scrawny woman, must have noticed me looking at the geode, so she comes over and says, That's Corey. He's gifted with a third eye. And I'm thinking, Good Christ, let me out of here. Later, Corey comes up to me and says, Hey, man, what time is it? And I'm thinking, what good is the third eye if you don't even know what fucking time it is? Cheetah was quiet for a while. And your point would be? My point is that maybe you do need some special insight to understand, really deeply understand quantum mechanics. Einstein never did, you know. He was never comfortable with it, calling it spooky action at a distance. But some of these guys in quantum mechanics, they do get it. "'Either that, or they fake it really well. "'Me? "'I always thought I'd be one of those who'd get it too, "'that it would click at some point. "'But it hasn't. "'I never developed the third eye. "'Maybe you should get a geode slice from the Earth Sciences Center. "'Kyle grunted. "'Maybe. "'I guess down deep, at some basic level, "'I just don't buy quantum mechanics.' I feel like a bit of a charlatan. Democritus did indeed communicate with at least one other alternative reality. That seems to confirm the many-worlds interpretation. Carl looked at Cheetah's lenses. That's it, he said simply. That's the problem. This type of quantum computing hinges on the many-worlds interpretation, but come on, really, how plausible is that? "'Surely not every conceivable universe exists, "'but rather only the ones that have at least some likelihood of having occurred.' "'For instance,' asked Cheetah. "'Well,' said Carl, "'there's no recorded case of anyone ever being killed by a meteor falling on them, "'but it could happen. "'So is there a universe in which I was killed that way yesterday? "'Another one in which I was killed that way the day before?' A third, in which I was killed that way the day before that? A fourth, fifth, and sixth, in which it was my brother, not me, who was killed? A seventh, eighth, and ninth, in which both of us were killed on those days by meteor impacts? Cheetah did not hesitate. No. Why not? Because meteors have no volition. In every universe, precisely the same meteors hit the earth. All right said Carl. But say one crashes today in, I don't know, say in Antarctica. Now, I've never been to Antarctica, and I never intend to go there. But is there some parallel universe in which I did go, and in which I happened to be killed by that meteor? And then aren't there seven billion times as many universes, accounting for all the people alive, who might instead have gone to Antarctica?' "'It does seem rather an awful lot of parallel universes, doesn't it?' said Cheetah. "'Exactly. In which case there must be some sort of filtration process, something that distinguishes between conceivable universes and plausible ones, between those that we simply can imagine and those that have some reasonable chance of actually existing. That could explain why we only got one other factor back in the experiment.' "'I suppose you're right.' And— Oh! What? said Carl. I see what you're getting at. Carl was surprised. He wasn't sure he himself knew what he was getting at. And that is? The ethics of the many worlds' interpretation. Carl considered. You know, I guess you're right. Say I find a wallet that contains an unlocked smart cash card with a thousand dollars on it. "'Say, the wallet also has a driver's license in it. "'I've got the rightful owner's name and address right there.' "'Cheetah had a cross-shaped pattern of LEDs on his console. "'He could activate the vertical column of them, "'or the horizontal row, "'to simulate either nodding or shaking his head. "'He did his nod.' "'Well,' said Kyle, "'according to the many worlds' interpretation, anything that can possibly go two ways "'does go two ways.' "'There's a universe in which I return the money to the person who lost it, "'but there's also a universe in which I keep it for myself. "'Now, if there are bound to be two universes, "'then why the heck shouldn't I be the guy who keeps the money?' "'An intriguing question, and without impugning your character, "'such a dilemma does seem within the realm of possibility. "'But I suspect your moral concerns run deeper. "'I suspect you're wondering about you and Rebecca.' Even if in this universe you didn't molest her, you are wondering if there is some conceivable universe in which you did.